Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. It is uh, my tremendous pleasure to welcome today's speaker who's been a great inspiration to me as a speaker and also as a person, a prolific and powerful storyteller. Larry Reed has published more than a thousand columns, something else I aspire to, and he gives roughly 75 speeches every single year. Um, thank you for joining us today here. He has truly dedicated his life to advancing the idea of liberty as a life philosophy and also to live this idea as a role model for others. In his own words, to be fully human, we have to have considerable liberty to exercise our uniqueness. A major theme in uh, Larry's work throughout his books and speeches is the importance of building and preserving virtues and character. Self-improvement comes first. According to Larry, if you really want to change the world, you have to first improve yourself and that couldn't be more true. Today, he speaks to us as President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, the world's oldest free market think tank, where he was president for more than 10 years. Previously, he served for about 20 years as president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy in Michigan, and he taught economics full-time from 77 to 84 at Northwood University, where he also chaired the department during his uh, tenure. Uh, I believe that's prepared Larry well for connecting with audiences of all ages. Today, he'll share with us what led to the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. May we heed his lessons well and do everything that's in our power to preserve our republic, the United States of America. Please join me in welcoming Larry to the stage. Thank you, Romina. What a star Romina is. And I say that knowing that you at Heritage uh, know precisely what I mean, and also because we at FEE uh, know what a star she is. She is a very active FEE alum. I'm not sure when you first came to a FEE seminar, but uh, 2008, it's been 11 years ago, and uh, she's a very active member of our FEE alumni board. So thank you for that very kind introduction, Romina, and thank you all for coming today. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I've always, uh, uh, way back to the earliest days of the Mackinac Center, if not before, always thought of Heritage as sort of the mothership of uh, think tanks in the liberty movement. And we were always inspired by your example. And uh, over and over again in Michigan uh, in the late 80s, when we started the Mackinac Center, uh, people would ask, well, what do you have in mind? What do you want to do? What is it that uh, you hope to accomplish? We would often say, 
we want to be thought of as the Heritage Foundation of Michigan, uh, the organization in our state that provides uh, market solutions to um, uh, economic problems in our state. And I'm so glad, uh, as I fully expected, Ramita, that you got my new title uh, correct, uh, President Emeritus. I was just talking to my old colleague, Diane Katz, about how when I assumed that title in May uh, of last year, I think it was the very first speaking engagement I had, someone introduced me as President Emeritus, <laughs> which gave me the opportunity to say, no, I take medication for that. <laughs> but it surprised me that, uh, and that was the first of several occasions when that uh, word has been mispronounced. As you know, it's from the Latin, so it's uh, especially appropriate, perhaps, uh, uh, to make mention of that. As Romita mentioned, I want to talk to you about Rome today. I want to begin by uh, giving you an idea of where I'm coming from uh, as I look at Roman history and try to apply the lessons to be learned uh, to uh, our experience here in America today. I've often been asked over the years, whether it be in a state context, national or beyond, what do you think is the most important issue? Uh, usually it's you know in the country at the moment. What's the most important issue? And people typically expect me to say, well, you know, the national debt or out-of-control spending or uh, taxation, uh, things of that nature. And they are certainly high on my list of, of big problems. But I think the answer to that question is the same today as it ever was in this country. And it's the same as it's always been anywhere. And that is the number one issue that determines the rise and fall of, of nations is character. And so you'll see uh, some character themes, I, I think, worked into this talk, because I think ultimately that's what decides uh, where a country is going. I can't think of a country that didn't rise to true greatness, not, not just military prowess, but actual greatness in terms of the... Uh, values it represented and the impact it made for the good on the course of the world. I've never uh, come across a country that rose to that kind of true greatness without a substantial reservoir of character in its people. And I can't think of a country that lost that reservoir of character and that kept its liberties. And in most cases, if it lost that character, it lost its uh, uh, very existence, uh, at least quite frequently in history. So that, that will be a bit of a theme because I firmly believe that Rome's rise to substantial uh, greatness in so many positive ways was due to character and its slide into oblivion was due largely to its erosion of character. This is a civilization that everybody knows uh, was with us for a long time, a thousand years of ancient Roman history, kind of neatly divided almost uh, in equal halves, first half roughly as a republic, and the second half as an imperial autocracy or empire, where the top uh, person was an emperor, not a consul or a popularly elected assembly or a senator. Uh, those are two very different Romes, the first 500 years versus the second 500 years. And also that division is, uh, occurs roughly at the time of the birth of Christ. So think of Rome as uh, roughly f as a republic 500 years from 508 BC 
uh, too late in the first century BC, giving way to that of the empire, which lasted about another 500 years um, and uh, finally came to an end in the West in uh, the year 476 AD. Like America, Rome was born in revolt against tyranny, against monarchy in 508 uh, BC. And uh, at that point, Romans were fed up with one-man rule, so much so that they basically said, we don't want any more of that, no more kings. In fact, uh, over a course of a number of years, they established institutions that look a lot like uh, some of those uh, that characterize this country. They established a senate. It was uh, populated by people who could trace their ancestry back to the earliest uh, Romans, so it was not uh, a popularly elected assembly. Uh, but uh, in addition to the Senate, they had uh, popularly elected assemblies. And over the course of time, the, the conflict between those two would largely resolve itself in favor of the popularly elected assemblies with more um, uh, uh, ability of those assemblies elected by uh, people who had the franchise to actually affect policy uh, in ancient Rome. You think of the achievements of the Roman Republic in so many ways, they are astounding and would not be uh, equaled or paralleled uh, in, uh, for hundreds of years after the collapse of the, of the empire in the West. Uh, in terms of uh, concepts in Roman law that, uh, that will resonate with you here today, uh, Rome invented the concept of habeas corpus, of separation of powers, of term limits, or at least if not invented them, at least uh, 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 brought them to the fore and made them centerpieces of Roman governance. <clears throat> they had a constitution, although like the British, it was uh, an unwritten one, but it had uh, great power for hundreds of years among Romans. The very concept of, hey, we have precedence, we have consensus, we have customs, we have rules that we stick to, even if they're not all written down in great detail, uh, was very much a part of Roman political life uh, for hundreds of years in the early Republic. And this was a time as well, many historians have noted this, when Roman character really stood out. This was a time when uh, Romans thought of themselves as, uh, and they practiced this, they didn't just think of these things, they practiced uh, to a considerable degree uh, virtues like uh, honesty and patience and respect for the property uh, of each other. Uh, gravitas, of course, is Latin, meaning a uh, dignified self-control, very much a part of Roman thinking and behavior for much of this time. Uh, virtus, fides, trustworthiness, uh, these were uh, values that were taught in Roman homes uh, and in fact Rome wouldn't even have public schools until the first century BC. Roman schooling was done in the home for almost every Roman citizen uh, for, for hundreds of years. And I believe that what held Rome together, uh, even with plenty of exceptions and lots of bad things from time to time happening. Nonetheless, I don't know that a civilization uh, for this length of time prior to Rome had achieved um, uh, the kind of greatness in moral virtue as well as economic progress uh, that uh, the Roman Republic did. And it was character and a consensus about character that I think pretty much kept uh, uh, Romans together. 
This allowed this, uh, these character traits of things like honesty and, and uh, self-discipline, hard work, respect for the property of others. This allowed for Rome to become the center of the world's wealth uh, within a matter of a few hundred years. How many have seen um, the Monty Python film? I, f I think it's The Life of Brian, but I've, you know the scene I'm referring to. Uh, there's a scene where John Cleese, this is in Roman Palestine, and John Cleese is trying to work up the uh, uh, Palestinians into a resistance movement against Rome. And at one point he says, uh, after all, what have the Romans ever done for us? And you'll recall there's a voice from the audience that says, uh, aqueducts. <laughs> and then he says, well, okay, uh, but other than aqueducts, what have the Romans ever done for us? And that begins a cascade of sanitation, peace, you know, public order, uh, education, architecture, <laughs> and then, yeah, a whole list of things. And then he finally sums it all up and he says, okay, other than <laughs> this long list of things, what have the Romans ever done for us? Well, that, that's a kind of uh, humorous way to pay tribute to the greatness uh, that Rome had become within a few hundred years of, it, of its founding. Um, I want to share with you some uh, quotes from some historians that will uh, I think uh, resonate with my theme. One of them is a more recent historian. The others are actually Romans uh, from uh, the first century BC uh, up to uh, the first century AD. Uh, in his 1944 book, Will Durant, uh, uh, Will Durant's the author, his book is called Caesar and Christ. Uh, Will Durant summarized one of the monumental lessons of ancient Rome in these words. He said, a great civilization is not conquered from without until it has destroyed itself within. The essential causes of Rome's decline lay in her people, her morals, her class struggle, her failing trade, her bureaucratic despotism, her stifling taxes, her consuming wars. Let me share with you what Romans of the day, at least three of their most notable historians had to say along the same lines. Uh, Sallust uh, uh, was both a provincial governor of Roma North Africa and a prolific writer during the first century BC, which was also the last century of the Old Republic. It was in that century, the 100s uh, till about uh, the 40s BC, that the Roman Republic uh, uh, crumbled into an autocracy. But looking upon this, Sallust noted this, ambition prompted many to become deceitful, to keep one thing concealed in the breast and another ready on the tongue, to estimate friendships and enmities not by their worth, but according to one's interests, and to carry a special, a specious countenance rather than an honest heart. That's a commentary, I think, on character. A century after Sallust, Tacitus, perhaps the most famous of Roman historians, he practiced law, served in the Roman Senate, and wrote so well and so uh, prolifically that he's considered one of the greatest historians of antiquity. He lamented the demise of the liberties of the old republic, which had disappeared just decades before he wrote, and the rise of emperors of dubious character. And he wrote, lust of absolute power is more burning than all the passions. Lust, lust of absolute power is more burning than all the passions. 
Um, I'm reminded, of course, of the famous dictum of Lord Acton, who told us how corrupting power is and how it is, uh, the corruption increases as the power increases. Uh, that is one of the most salient observations about the course of human history that I can think of. Um, this line sounds like it uh, might have come from uh, Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, but it actually comes from Tacitus. When men of talents are punished, authority is strengthened. And the same is true for this one, also from uh, Tacitus. And now bills were passed, not only for national objects, but for individual cases. And laws were most numerous when the Commonwealth was most corrupt. By this time, by the time of uh, Tacitus, Rome had degenerated from a relatively free republic to a monstrous dictatorship. More details on that in a moment. So its policies at home were no better uh, ultimately than its policies abroad. And Tacitus noted with regret, it is the rare fortune, now think of this, because it wasn't so long before that there was considerable freedom uh, to speak your mind in ancient Rome, to debate the issues of the day. Uh, it is the rare fortune of these days, he wrote, that one may think uh, what one likes and say what one thinks. In other words, he's saying how rare it is that uh, you still have the freedom at that point in the first century uh, to speak your mind. Levy is the third and final Roman historian I want to cite before I get it back into my talk. Uh, he wrote uh, in the period between Sallust and Tacitus, and he is known best perhaps for his sweeping history of Rome that goes all the way back to its founding, uh, steeped in legend, uh, through the first of the emperors, uh, Augustus. And he noted uh, a decline in personal character uh, as a feature of the uh, demise of the old republic as well. He said, men are only too clever at shifting blame from their own shoulders to those of others. Such is the nature of crowds. Either they are humble and servile or arrogant and dominating. They are incapable of making moderate use of freedom, which is the middle course, or of keeping it. He also wrote that there is nothing that is more often clothed in an attractive garb than a false creed. And finally, uh, a few words from Levy on the importance of knowing history. He said, the subjects to which I would ask each of my readers to devote his earnest attention are these. The life and morals of the community, the men and the qualities by which through domestic policy and foreign war dominion was won and extended. Then as the standard of morality gradually lowers, let him follow the decay of the national character, observing how at first <clears throat> it slowly sinks then slips downward more and more rapidly, and finally begins to plunge into headlong ruin until he reaches these days in which we can bear neither our diseases nor their remedies. And finally, there is this exceptionally beneficial and fruitful advantage to be derived from the study of the past that you see set in the clear light of historical truth examples of every possible type from these, you may select for yourself and your country what to imitate and also what, as being mischievous in its inception and disastrous in its issues, you are to avoid. 
Those comments by three very prominent Roman historians all hint at what I think is uh, the major factor in Rome's rise as well as its decline, and that is, again, character. I remember uh, two years ago in April uh, giving a similar talk uh, at the University of Denver. This is going to be a uh, much friendlier audience, I know. But in that talk, I was five minutes into it, and all I had uh, talked about were some of the great achievements of ancient Rome, the material achievements. And I mentioned that uh, Roman road building would not be eclipsed in magnitude until the U.S. interstate road building campaign of the 1950s. And that's when one of uh, about 15 students who sort of strategically planted themselves in the audience to raise a fuss at the right point, one of them blurted out, that's not true. And I said, excuse me, what are you talking about? He said, no, the Mayans, the Mayans built more roads than the Romans. I said, you got to be kidding. You mean the Mayans of, of Guatemala? They built more? I mean, you could take the entire Mayan empire and stick it in half of the Roman province of Egypt, and yet they built more roads? He insisted that that's what his professors had, had uh, uh, told the students. I don't know if that's true or not, but it puzzled me for a long time until I realized in today's politically correct environment in so many universities, I think it's, it's, it's almost a sin in some of those quarters to suggest that uh, white European uh, people of any time period have accomplished such great, great things as the Romans did, that indigenous peoples are always uh, the heroes. Um, anyway, I hope that's not what's being taught these days because Roman road building truly was uh, on a scale that would not be eclipsed for centuries until the U.S. in the 1950s. I have a few uh, interesting uh, uh, measures of some of uh, Rome's uh, greatness. And some of these uh, actually are uh, a few decades into the period of the empire because there was some momentum from the old Republic days and the peace that Augustus brought certainly helped to uh, uh, at least uh, put Rome briefly back on a path to some progress. In 70 AD, uh, well into the uh, uh, empire period, there were a million people in Rome, not until London in the 19th century would any city on the planet approach that size again. Anybody want to guess the size of Rome at its nadir uh, during the, uh, that same geographic region? How many people did Rome have at its lowest point, which happened to be in the Middle Ages? Um, anybody want to guess what that number would be? How low it got? 17,000. From a city of one million to as low as 17,000 uh, some centuries later. When Vespasian started building the Colosseum in 70 AD, Rome was 10 times the size that it was when Napoleon invaded almost 18 centuries later. Uh, the Colosseum sat 45,000 people with standing room for another, as many as another 20,000. In 100 AD, you could travel from Egypt to France on paved roads with only one currency and one passport in your pocket. Aqueducts reached uh, 60 to 70 miles uh, into Rome from the countryside and, and nearby hills. More fresh water uh, in those aqueducts per person than at any time in Rome until the 1950s. So uh, there are many enormous achievements of the uh, 
Republic period as well as the early empire, all of which I think stem from the general climate, plenty of exceptions, of respect for property, of respect for enterprise, uh, and of uh, considerable political freedom. Rome always had slavery. There's no way to get around that. And slavery is always and everywhere a deplorable institution. But um, uh, compared to what came before in much of the world and what would come for many centuries thereafter, um, Rome achieved heights of, uh, of greatness in this period of, of relative freedom that were uh, uh, quite envious. Now, why um, did Rome lose all this? Uh, it's a topic that could consume and does uh, entire courses. Uh, the historian Mike Duncan, in his fascinating recent book called The Storm Before the Storm, uh, takes a look at this and he says, you know, if there's a, a particular year, and I think, he's, uh, I think he makes a very good case for this, if there's a single year that you had to pick, uh, uh, pick and, and say that, you know, put the emphasis on that year as the turning point when the greatness of the Republic gave way to an erosion of character, concentration of power, loss of the liberties that defined the early uh, Republic, it would probably be 146 BC. And the reason is that in that year, two important events happened. Rome uh, finished off Carthage in North Africa at great uh, uh, cost, and at the same time also crushed a rebellion in Corinth in um, uh, Greece. And the reason uh, Duncan argues, I th again, I think he's right, that that's, those are uh, significant events, is that you can almost trace the rise of, uh, of, of generals and military figures uh, capturing the imagination and the fealty of Roman citizens at the expense of their dedication to uh, the society as a whole. These generals would come back from successful ventures abroad bringing slaves with them that ultimately did great damage to the agricultural economy of small farmers who had to compete with slave labor. That led, in fact, to the effort of the Gracchus brothers to redistribute uh, certain amounts of public land on the theory that, well, uh, the privileged few with political connections, these generals and other military people have accumulated this land. So many others don't have any, so let's have a uh, measure from the government that redistributes land. That led to, uh, I think, the earliest uh, feeling that, hey, maybe the central government is more useful to us uh, than we thought. Maybe instead of just thinking of it as an institution that protects us or guarantees our liberties, we should think of it also as an institution that provides for our well-being. Um, there are three uh, effects, uh, practical, real-world effects of the erosion of character that I think begins about this time. One is that uh, Romans became more tolerant of costly foreign adventures, uh, thinking that there would be opportunities to, for gain when the generals brought back uh, uh, the wealth that it did from other lands. It was also the rise of the welfare state at this time that uh, shows itself first in the form of um, free grain or subsidized grain for large numbers of people. Ultimately, that becomes not just a privilege, but a, a right uh, that the state should provide you with. Um, and that was a hallmark, I think, in the slide of, of Rome into uh, a destructive, costly, 
calamitous uh, welfare state. And politically, you find that uh, Romans who once had such dedication to um, the institutions that gave them their political liberties, such dedication that, in fact, if you ever even hinted, say, in uh, 200, 300, 400 BC, that uh, you'd like to become a king or you'd like to concentrate power and, uh, um, in some way, you had to get out of town because Romans felt that uh, that was something that, uh, that they didn't want to have anything to do with. And anyone who was thought to be conniving for the concentration of power would uh, be quickly dealt with one way or the other. But it was an increasing willingness in that first century uh, BC to cut corners, to compromise on constitutional norms uh, in service of either the welfare state or uh, the general that got you the goodies that he brought, or whatever, uh, that I think uh, were great manifestations of this slide uh, away from the old virtues to the uh, embrace of welfare state virtues, of anything goes, get it now. Don't think of the long run, think of what uh, you can get for yourself now at the expense of others without regard to things like other people's property rights. That increasingly characterizes uh, the first century BC. And not coincidentally, that is also the time when uh, Rome descends into constant conflict, internal conflict and strife. Um, I think every welfare state, the bigger it gets, sooner or later is going to confront this issue. When government becomes this massive apparatus, seizing so much of other people's money and then uh, and, and redistributing it, Lots of people want to get in charge of that, either to keep it at bay, keep it out of their pockets, or get something at other people's expense. It is a prescription, this concentration of power for the redistribution of wealth that is uh, uh, the, uh, the seed of so much conflict that came to characterize um, ancient Rome at this, at this time. There's an old story. Uh, how many remember the, a man named Tom Anderson? He was a humorist, um, a conservative humorist uh, back in the 50s and 60s from Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Um, I first heard this story from him, and I think it really uh, uh, can be applied to uh, uh, some of the lessons from Roman history. He told the story of uh, a band of wild hogs that lived along a bend of a river somewhere in my state now, Georgia. And this band of wild hogs was a stubborn, uh, ornery, independent, self-reliant bunch. They had survived floods and freezes and fires and droughts and hunters and dogs, you name it. Nobody thought that these, these wild hogs could ever be uh, captured. One day, a stranger came into town, went into a store, and said to the storekeeper, I've got a plan to pen the hogs up. Can you tell me where I can find them? And the storekeeper laughed at him and said, you'll never do that. But he nonetheless gave him uh, general directions. And off the stranger went with nothing but a one-horse wagon, a few sacks of corn, and an axe. And a few months later, he came back into town, went into that same store, said to the storekeeper, well, I've got, a, I got the hogs all pinned up, up near the swamp. I need some help to bring them out. The storekeeper couldn't believe it. And others came from miles around to hear the story of how this guy had penned the hogs who could never, they, they thought, never be rounded up. He said it was really rather simple. 
At first, I made a clearing at the center of the forest with my axe and put some of the corn at the center of the clearing. And for the first few days, none of the hogs would come out and take any of the corn. But after a while, some of the younger ones would come out, grab some of the corn, scamper back into the underbrush. Before long, he said, the older ones were coming too, each of them figuring that if they didn't get their share, another hog would get it in its place. So he said, they all came regularly thereafter, taking corn as I put it in the clearing. And he said, it was about that time I started to build a fence, a little higher each day. And at the right place, he said, um, I built a trap door, and at the right moment, I sprung it. And his last line was, naturally, they squealed and hollered when they knew I had them. But I can pen any animal on the face of this earth if I can first get him to depend on me for a free handout. There's a lesson there that I think describes the last decades of ancient Rome. When the central government ceased to be an institution aimed largely at preserving uh, liberty and aimed instead at becoming an institution that redistributed wealth, that kept the masses satisfied by giving them something at other people's expense. The greatest of the Roman Republicans spoke out against a lot of this, certainly the loss of political liberties, and that was Cicero. Uh, I've often thought, you know, if, you, if, I had, uh, if I had the ability to go back in time, and if I could pick 10 people who've lived in history and spend an hour with each of them, uh, I've often wondered, who would I pick? And every time, that list changes a little bit from time to time, but Cicero was on that list all the time. The greatest of Roman Republic, Republic uh, advocates who saw the Republic crumbling around him in the first century, saw the conflict, the concentration of power, the cutting of uh, corners and the uh, evasion of constitutional norms, the rise of the strongman, and spoke out against this, trying to bring Rome uh, back to its senses. He rose as a, uh, a great lawyer and orator and uh, to this day, we know him as uh, a, a person whose speeches and letters survive in huge uh, numbers. More of what he wrote uh, is still in existence uh, than that of any other person who lived before the year 1000 AD. Uh, when Gutenberg published uh, or, or printed the Bible, his first uh, printing press product, his second was uh, a work of um, Marcus Tullius Cicero highly regarded uh, even by America's founders as uh, a great advocate for liberty. He saw all of this happening around him. And sometimes people uh, want to know, well, when would you say the Republic actually disappeared? When did this slide of in character, the rise of the welfare state, conflict, strife, and so forth, when did it come to a head? When was it ended? Some would say, well, when Augustus became emperor. Others would say, uh, maybe when Caesar, Julius Caesar, a few years before that, was named emperor for life. But you know, that only lasted a month. Uh, I think you could argue that maybe the Republic came to an end with the death of Cicero. Uh, after Caesar was assassinated, there was a, uh, 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 an attempt by Mark Antony to seize power. He wanted to be the new uh, central authority, the all-powerful uh, guy at the top. At that point, uh, Cicero came out of retirement 
and went to the Senate and delivered a series of 14 famous speeches, you can read them to this day, called the Philippics, in which he uh, narrowed in on Mark Antony, accused him of being a would-be tyrant, and tried to rouse the Senate and Romans in general to preserve their ancient liberties. Uh, he was named by Mark Antony an enemy of the state, and I hope that was a badge he wore proudly. But uh, Mark Antony dispatched an assassin, and in 43 AD, December of 43 AD, or BC, uh, Cicero was assassinated. I think that's when the Republic ended, even though there was a period of conflict before Augustus would emerge as the top guy. Let me go a little further and tell you some other hallmarks uh, of the empire period that took the welfare state of the, of, uh, the old republic and made it even worse, enshrined it uh, in law and deepened its, uh, its fangs into Roman life. Um, do you know in, in the uh, year 33 AD there was a financial crisis in ancient Rome and the response of the government was to issue uh, to sort of belch out a massive issuance of zero interest credit. Does that sound familiar? And the effort there was to stimulate the economy uh, through easy money. It was under Nero, a few years later in the 50s AD, that currency debauchery became a centerpiece of, uh, of ancient Rome. Before this time, if the Roman government wanted to spend a lot more money, it usually had to go dig a little deeper uh, in the silver mines, for instance, and mint more silver coins. But beginning with Nero, <clears throat> the process of official state debauchery of the currency began. He was the first of many emperors who would call in the coins of the realm, melt them down, uh, mix in cheaper junk metals into the molten mass, and then make a lot more coinage as a result with the precious metal content uh, thereby reduced until the denarius that was once 94, 96% silver by the time of Aurelian in 274, it was 0.02% silver. The rest was all junk. It was just uh, token uh, real money, you might say at that point. Uh, cities uh, throughout the empire increasingly uh, got on the dole as well. Uh, and it was at the time of Hadrian that cities that got themselves into financial difficulties could then uh, begin receiving financial aid from the central government. Hadrian began that process, but he put imperial curators in charge of those cities, proving the old adage that uh, he who pays the piper will sooner or later call the tune. What that uh, accomplished was the further concentration of power in Rome itself, as opposed to the dispersion of power uh, around the, uh, uh, the empire. Civil wars and conflict, strife of all kinds, uh, uh, became commonplace after Augustus. Between 180 and 285, just to choose an uh, interesting period there of 105 years, there were 27 emperors, all but two, met uh, violent deaths. Uh, after 100 AD, lots of evidence of mass corruption in government, huge bureauc bureaucracy with stifling taxes and regulations on producers. I mentioned Nero. Uh, some historians, I think, have a little fun with him by pointing out that uh, uh, he may have been the father of urban renewal. We don't know for sure whether uh, he ordered the destruction of a por portion of the city or simply uh, uh, 
turned it to his advantage. But uh, a good portion of Rome burned while he was emperor, and he used it as an opportunity to build uh, some uh, elaborate uh, palaces uh, where the old city had been. Uh, this process I mentioned of inflation, by the way, was this is not new. Uh, Rome did it through the dilution of the precious metal of its uh, content of its currency, but it wasn't the first time in history that governments have resorted to it, nor would it be the last. Uh, the prophet Isaiah in biblical times challenged Israel, uh, the Israelites, for doing pretty much the same thing. Isaiah refers to them as, uh, in this language, he said, thy silver has become dross, thy wine mixed with water. In other words, you're taking valuable things and uh, uh, diluting their value by mixing them with uh, cheaper junk. Um, Emperor Diocletian is, uh, gives us a, an interesting moment in uh, the history of the Roman Empire uh, because it was in 301 AD when Diocletian, I understand the Smithsonian here has a, a fascinating exhibit on his edict of that year, but after decades of inflation, soaring prices as a result of this currency debasement, Diocletian decides to tackle it head on, but he does so not by shutting down the, uh, the quote, printing presses of, of, their, of that day, or the, uh, the corrupting, uh, corruption of the mints, but rather uh, by imposing wage and price controls. That's what his edict of 301 AD was. Comprehensive wage and uh, price controls imposed uh, upon Romans under penalty of death. And here's what the uh, ancient Roman historian Lactantius said in 314 AD, looking back at this experience with comprehensive wage and price controls. He said, after the many oppressions which he put in practice had brought a general shortage upon the empire, he then set himself to regulate the prices of all vendable things. There was much bloodshed upon very slight and trifling accounts and the people brought provisions no more to markets because they could not get a reasonable price for them. And this increased the shortage so much that after many had died by it, the law itself was laid aside. The damage to the Roman economy, I think at that point, was largely irreparable. And the slide from that uh, date forward for the next century and three quarters was quite precipitous. In 476 AD, of course, the barbarians that had assaulted the empire without success for uh, much of the previous several hundred years were able to actually enter Rome itself. Wouldn't be the wasn't the first sacking of Rome, but it was the first one where the barbarians were able to hold the city and keep it. And the German Germanic chieftain by the name of Odoacer pushes aside the last of the Roman emperors and declares himself as the new authority. The empire would go on for another thousand years in the east, but the Western Roman Empire centered in Rome in that year uh, came to as an official an end uh, as, uh, as you could have. Now, I've given you a lot of stuff uh, over a long period of thousand years. Um, let me work to a conclusion by saying that, uh, uh, that once again, the uh, to look at Roman history and say, well, it was the barbarians that did it. It was uh, someone outside of Rome that brought an end to the Roman civilization. I don't think that's accurate at all. I think it would ignore 
the greatness of the Republic period that was made possible by, by a solid character that was eroded until ultimately uh, the Roman welfare warfare state committed suicide. When Rome fell in 476, it fell like a ripe plum uh, because of what Romans had done to themselves. With that, I hope I've said enough to prompt some questions. Thank you. Hi, thank you, uh, Tom Savage with uh, Alec. Hey, Tom. Um, thank you, thank you for your talk today. And I, I, I was thinking of a later, of a later, I, I guess maybe philosopher um, Machiavelli in his discourses on Livy, where he talks about you know whether it's a monarchy, an aristocracy, or a republic, sooner or later people give into their vices, and that's how these civilizations fall apart. And I was wondering if you know if you had any thoughts of that or. Machiavelli seems a bit more pessimistic that it, you know, people will give into their vices whether it's sooner or later it's going to happen. Oh. Well, that, that certainly describes what happened in Rome and has happened in many uh, other places in history. I guess I would quarrel with the, the, the air of inevitability that Machiavelli suggested, that this is just the way it's going to happen. Uh, because I believe people are creatures of ideas. If I thought decline and is inevitable. I suppose I'd throw in the towel, find something else to do, and maybe all of you would as well. But we're in this battle of ideas because we recognize that people are creatures of what goes on up here. They can change their minds, they can change their thinking, they can wise up, and they can uh, change their, the course of history. So uh, that would be my biggest beef, I think, with that aspect of, of Machiavelli. I think you can turn things around. And we're in the process of doing it, aren't we, for me? To... <laughs> uh, Jack Spencer, the Heritage Foundation. So sort of following up on what you just said, where is the United States on this, on this uh, spectrum right now? And oh. how, long, how much longer do we have? Uh, you know, along these lines, uh, let me just recommend a book that came out maybe 10 or 12 years ago by Thomas Madden called Empires of Trust. And he addresses this very question. He, he draws parallels and then uh, attempts to suggest where America might be vis-a-vis -vis, uh, ancient Rome. It's a very tricky business because civilizations, especially uh, separated by 2,000 years, have their own idiosyncrasies, peculiarities, one has to be careful not to uh, draw precise uh, parallels. But if you look at that Roman timeline, I would say we certainly aren't uh, at the phase yet where the Constitution has become essentially meaningless. Uh, although, wouldn't you agree with me if, if I were to say that the understanding of, the dedication, the commitment to constitutional principles today may not be as strong as it was uh, a few decades ago? There are a lot of people in America who think that it's uh, having a constitution that goes back 200 plus years automatically means it's obsolete. Um, so uh, I would say we are analogous in our current situation to maybe the uh, late Republic. I would say maybe like around 100 uh, BC when the institutions of self-government, constitutional norms were under assault 
Uh, there were consuls, the top of official in Rome, who increasingly said, hey, I know I'm only supposed to be here one year, but uh, I think you ought to, I think I ought to serve more than one year. Marius served seven uh, times as a consul, even though the constitutional norm for hundreds of years was one time for one year. Um, so you're, we're seeing some erosion in the uh, commitment to the things that uh, define us as a uh, as a uh, free republic, but we're not yet the uh, the tyranny of, of the Roman Empire. Uh, you know, but I would say, uh, you know, unless uh, there's a renaissance of character in this country, I don't know that you can commit some of the same uh, sins that places like ancient Rome committed uh, and allow your uh, character to erode to the extent they did and not suffer similar consequences. So I think there's a very real danger that the ugliness of the empire could someday you know, look like our future uh, unless we uh, uh, revive character. Again, the most important issue anywhere and at all times, I think, is character. Everything hinges on it. Uh, hi, uh Hi, I'm Steve Dewey, a fellow at Grove City College alumni. Wow. Yeah. Class of 75. Class of 78. Okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious about, uh, you spoke about um, uh, you know, the first 500 years of Rome. Was the way they prospered was because of uh, strong moral character. And I'm curious what your thoughts are. Where did that strong moral character come, come from? Did it come from the Old Testament? some religious beliefs, like, for example, with the United States, I think it came from, in the first 100 years, or 150 years, it came from uh, strong Christian values. Yeah. So I'm curious, where did the, that strong moral character come from uh, in the first 500 years? For yeah, I think you're right about uh, where our uh, strong moral character came from, uh, largely a Judeo-Christian heritage. Of course, uh, that didn't, uh, that wasn't a factor in, uh, 509 BC in ancient Rome. I, uh, this is a guess. Don't know for sure, but I think there's a. Uh, uh, I mean, it, you can't underestimate how how critical those de political developments, the military developments, were of 509 BC for the Roman people to rise up and throw off a form of government that most of the world had always known, that they'd always known, monarchy. Uh, I'm. So I'm guessing that as part of the reaction to what they came to hate, uh, they decided, look, if we're going to have institutions that don't rely upon one guy at the top to tell us what to do, well, then we've got to, there's certain standards we as people have to maintain or we're going to lose it. Then some other guy will come in and, and uh, be the strong man in charge of us. Uh, that's just a guess on my part. I don't know what uh, maybe... Uh, Historians who have studied this far more than me may have another explanation, but I think it was largely a reaction to what they what they had before and the desire to do whatever they... I think they realized that the liberty they had just won wasn't just going to be automatic and eternal, that they had to do something to keep it in place. And probably the process of thinking about, well, what are the institutions that can keep power from being concentrated in one guy? I think they put two and two together in a lot of ways and realized that, well, we've got to be a people of, that 
that are honest to each other. We've got to uh, value things other than power for ourselves. Um, that's the, I think that's the best explanation I can think of for why it happened there. Thank you so much, Larry. Um, Diane Kansas, you know, from Heritage. Um, so following on that comment, I wonder if there's something inherent in civilizations as they evolve where character begins to break down because of either um, complacency or the luxuries of wealth or you know other other changes and there's a tipping point at which decline sets in well that isn't that's kind of an eternal question isn't it uh, I wish I wish we had a hard and fast uh, obvious answer to that um, let, let me venture uh, an answer that calls upon several factors here and you touched on one and that is uh, I forget how you worded it Diane but something about wealth that you mentioned I think, uh, and you find this in the, uh, some of the uh, exhortations of, of, of Jesus in the New Testament, uh, where he talks about wealth. And uh, he's not opposed to wealth, but he warns about its temptations. And I think throughout time, the, there is a, uh, wealth is not easily handled by a lot of people. Uh, you see this, don't you see it so evident in places like Hollywood, where sometimes fortunes are made uh, you know, quickly, or in sports. And uh, then you discover really the inner character of some of these people, and some of them just can't handle wealth. They allow it to corrupt themselves, and in no time at all, they go from having anything and everything uh, to losing their own souls. So part of it is that. I think uh, it takes character for a people to, uh, uh, to, to, first of all, accumulate and produce great wealth, but then also to... to uh, prevent it from, from uh, tempting you to do some things you shouldn't. I think that's a factor. When Rome became wealthy, I think a lot of people kind of forgot, well, where did that all come from? Uh, let's just say, this, that guy's got more than me, so let's just go take it. It, it. That sounds like a quick fix to so many personal problems, maybe, but it comes at the expense of some of the old values you used to believe in, like you work for a living, you don't vote for one. Uh, so there's great temptation that comes with success, I think. And the people of strong character can withstand those temptations, go on to new heights of greatness. But if they uh, don't have that uh, uh, mental infrastructure, uh, philosophical infrastructure, to uh, deal with wealth appropriately, it can corrupt them. I also think um, the, the most corrosive influence in human history, I think, is the desire for power. It's just there. It's in uh, probably all of us to some degree. Um, and it is, uh, it, it is absolutely uh, devastating to uh, civilization after civilization in history. This desire to be in charge, to push somebody else around, to take their stuff, to tell them what to do. It takes character to resist those temptations, especially if you've already got a little bit of power. In no time at all, a little bit leads to the desire to have more. It leads, leads to an inflated sense of, of one's value and worth and knowledge. Um, that's very tough to undo. A little bit of power um, 
goes a long way to, I think, undermining a society because a little bit leads to a little bit more, and before you know it, it becomes all-consuming. Um, we've just seen that happen time and time again. It, it's the one thing that can take even an otherwise very good person and grind them up. Uh, does that in this town, I think, all the time. Uh, it's, it's, it's extraordinarily corrosive. Hey, thanks, everybody. Appreciate your attentiveness. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ramita. Yep. Thank you so much for joining us. I would like to invite all of you now to please join us outside for a reception. <laughs>